software is broken, but it can be fixed, TestDouble's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. TestDouble is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. TestDouble trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a remote 100% employee-owned software consulting agency. Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at TestDouble. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's link.testdouble.com slash greater. Hello and welcome to episode 255 of the Greater Than Code podcast. My name is Jacob Stobel. I'm joined by my co-panelist, Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey. And I'm here with our other co-panelist, Artie Starr. And I'm here with our guest today, Anne Griffin. Anne is a product leader, a startup advisor, and subject matter expert in AI, blockchain, tech ethics, and inclusivity. She is the owner of Griffin Product and Growth, a product consulting and advising firm. Her workshop, Human First, Product Second, teaches organizations and professionals how to think about building more human, inclusive, and ethical tech products. She has lectured at prestigious universities across North America, such as Columbia University and West Point, spoken at major events such as South by Southwest, and created courses for O'Reilly Media. Outside of her work, she loves rest, barbecue, and beaches. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you so much. I am absolutely thrilled to be here today. It's a gorgeous day in New York. Artie, I know I've had like a couple conversations with you, Jacob. I've, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but we've had a conversation before and I just really love you guys. You guys are great. And Casey, I'm super excited to meet you. Yeah, the last time we were recording, we had some challenges with audio issues. And so we weren't able to get the podcast together. Um, which is really unfortunate because we had an amazing conversation. But we're all back here together, and I'm sure we're going to have a really awesome conversation this time, and it's probably going to be even better than before. So I'm excited to ask you our first question, Anne, is what is your superpower, and how did you acquire it? I would say one of my best superpowers is, maybe this counts as two separate things, but it's a combination of empathy and also collaboration, which I think empathy definitely helps make for a good collaborator. And where I got it, I think it's a combination of places as well, is really like growing up, like I was never the popular kid. I was always the kid that was like picked last in the gym. I had some friends, but like I was really, again, I was unpopular. I didn't really have that many friends. I was like picked on a bit. And so for me, I kind of was in this position where I was like, always like super conscious or tried to be of like how the things that I was doing was making other people feel because being in a position where, you know, I think some people thought like, ha ha ha, that's funny. I don't think anything much further than that, you know, for me, like made me feel not very great. And so I think some of that started from there and not to say I didn't have places where I was like, oh, I could improve in terms of empathy, but I really think that's really where it came from. And also in terms of my working style, 
I've always worked best being in a collaborative environment. I'm not super happy when I have to work completely solo and there's zero collaboration going on. And not saying there aren't things in product management where you are working solo, but one of the things I love about product management is by nature, it is a super collaborative role. And really, you have to have empathy to be a good collaborator because I would rather have somebody doing really amazing creative work because they feel inspired to, they feel like they can be themselves and bring their best selves into the workplace and that there is trust. And that is the thing that makes me feel the best about anything I do, honestly. And obviously, you know, launching new things, that's great. I love that. Obviously, it's a big part of product management. I wouldn't be in if that was important. But honestly, I get, I think, you know, it may not equal amounts or possibly more fuel from knowing that my team feels empowered, knowing that my team like actually loves being on the team and is really just excited to kind of like be together and be able to just do their best work and not out of like a, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble by someone or, oh, I have to be super scared of political stuff, but really being like, you know, I got to show up as me today and that empowered me to be my most creative and best self. Wow. The story you were talking about at the beginning with how you were feeling growing up, never the popular kid, and how that made you kind of hyper aware of how your actions and the things that you did ended up influencing the people around you and just developing this this hyper awareness that gave you this empathy and how you were thinking about things. I'm curious, did you also have environments and contexts where you were accepted and well-loved? I mean, like I'll say growing up, it's like, I'll say I was very fortunate that my family has always been very loving and accepting. So I'll say one of the most critical environments I had that um, I went to daycare for like a really long time. And I felt like, you know, there wasn't really this, I was an outsider there, but in terms of school environments, um, and I'm not really sure what it was like pretty much from like grade school all the way through high school was like kind of a, an outsider. So I think it's also having have been in certain other critical environments where I was loved and accepted. And, you know, I did, I think I met my, one of my like then best friends in like um, fifth grade, which then she eventually changed schools, all this other stuff, but, you know, having certain people, even if there wasn't a lot, and then having those critical environments where I was accepted, knowing kind of what it feels like when you are accepted in contrast to this whole thing of, you know, feeling kind of like, people don't really care you're there or they don't really want you to like join them at lunch or other things like that. That contrast sounds really powerful. This is kind of random, but it's reminding me of, I went to physical therapy last week because my posture is bad. My hands went numb two years ago. It's recovering. I'm pretty good now, but they were teaching me how to do a squat with good posture. And they said, here's the right way to do it. Bend your back here, do this, make sure your shoulders are tense. And then they had me do it wrong. So I got to do it the right way and the wrong way. And that helped so much. I've had like four or five PT people. This is the first one that showed me the wrong way for contrast. It's powerful. Absolutely. I agree that it's so powerful. And I think for me, that's part of where I originally kind of fostered, like, here are the feelings I know I want to have and that I can have. And like, how do I create that sense of safety in being oneself like outside of these environments. And I really felt like once I got to college and especially once I was working in environments that were healthy enough and safe enough for me to be able to kind of create 
this is the right type of environment where there is trust and collaboration. I was able to do that because I had experienced the wrong way of, I'll say, you know, the wrong way is in being excluded from things, people not really caring about how you feel based on comments, but had also kind of this area where I had learned also the right way. And actually one person who was very, I think, fundamental in helping me translate that into the work world is one of my mentors, Dana. Um, she actually, she used to work at Microsoft. She actually early retired from Microsoft. Um, and so she was at Microsoft while I interned there. And she really taught me that while it shouldn't be on you to solve all your workplaces problems, because they're not paying you to solve a culture problem that they should be handling, but you should really you know, act at work in terms of implementing the type of culture that you would want to work in. Don't just be, oh, I'm just upset because you know, all this bad stuff's happening and that kind of stuff. And you have the right to be upset if bad things are happening in your workplace. But if there are certain things that you can foster that you have control over in terms of like the attitude on your team and like how you empower other people to be able to talk about what are the problems, what is going well, what don't we like, how can we change it? What are like little things that can kind of nudge the atmosphere and really kind of foster that. Cause there's some places, yeah, they're, they're going to be toxic. And they're not going to be a big impact there, but there's also a lot that can be done in places where you are empowered to do that, especially as a product manager on like your own pod or your own team so that it is a happy place to be that people do feel included. People don't feel like people can just jump into your Slack channel, say a bunch of trash and then leave. And like, it's completely fine. Right. And I think that's that contrast there is learning what is the right way, uh, the right posture, I guess, for that type of environment really helped me, especially from my mentor, Dana, at Microsoft. And I feel like you're, you're saying so many things I say all the time, and I love to hear it from another person's voice. I believe strongly that you can make a, a small bubble that you're in, like a happy and effective environment, a team that you're on. Even if it's a toxic culture overall, you can have your own happy bubble. But I don't know, a lot of people don't value that or they don't, they don't celebrate it when they manage to get even one bubble. And that can be frustrating. It's, it's so cool to hear that you have felt like you've made some bubbles happy before. Yeah, I would say that, that when I say empathy and collaboration are my superpower, I would say also creating bubbles are one of my superpowers, even in remote environments, even before the pandemic, one of the places I worked was a remote first company. And it's always really interesting because I think because again, empathy and collaboration are my superpowers. Like I crave that a lot and you know, I'm going to be working for eight hours a day. So I try to create that everywhere I go uh, and not saying I'm trying to exclude people from the bubble, but anybody who wants to be a part of that type of culture, you know, I welcome them into that. And it's amazing because I'll go into places and even that small startup, people are like, Whoa, when you started, I noticed this like big culture shift. And it was really small, so it was much easier to make that kind of impact. But people started feeling like a lot more connected to each other, especially because we were remote first. We weren't really centralized in New York or in the United States. So there were people who were either based in Nepal or Mumbai, where they kind of said, because of the time zone differences, people didn't really think about, okay, is that person getting the support they need? When there's hours where people are not up and if we have more people in other time zones, how do we make sure those people feel included? Because there's a lot of ways you can actually make people feel excluded, even if it's unintentional. And people 
may still resent that or still may feel bad. And even if they don't resent you or like blame you, those are things where I think a lot of people just kind of say, well, it's not really my problem or organizations say, well, if they want to get a paycheck and they want to work remotely from that region, you know, they're just going to have to deal with it. And I also think I'm like, but if you don't care, why are you hiring people in that region if you're not going to foster a culture and just like an overall company bubble of making people feel like they matter and that they're included and that they're getting support and being creative with how you also support people asynchronously, you know? I think like in addition to like that, often is the case, like the geographical distance uh, differences, there's like other differences at play that are like specifically about like power just in terms of like country of origin you might have a lot of circumstances where you've got like people on salary in the states and everyone uh, is a contractor in like india or something i think there's like a lot of intersecting issues that can come up with people working internationally i would say i completely agree at that startup, everyone was technically was like a, was an employee, but I definitely think there was kind of a difference because people are used to oh those people in that time zone are usually a, a contractor. And I've worked at plenty of companies where if somebody was remote, it was because they were a contractor, and they usually were from a country of a lot of uh, you know brown people, and you know how people treated them was different. And it's very fascinating because consistently I see in cultures where there is not conscious messaging from the leadership about, yes, these people are contractors. Yes, we've outsourced this work to this place. Conscious kind of, I think, culture shaping and messaging from the leadership. Hey, you know, they are part of our team. We're working on the same goal. This is how we treat each other in this environment. You get very inconsistent results in how people choose to treat those people. And I've seen it where I've worked with a team and it was like, oh, wow, this was like such an amazing project. We work really, really well together. And then that same team gets passed to another like person, next like project, that sort of thing. And I talked to, you know, the contractors and they're kind of like, yeah, no, that person kind of just like yells at us and tells us every time we do something wrong and they don't ever bother setting up time to kind of discuss requirements in more detail. They just feel like, oh, well, you should get it. And it's, you have to think about like, okay, well, why would you not have these conversations with somebody who's, you know, based in India or Colombia or Brazil, but you know, you're having these conversations at the coffee cooler in person and you expect them to pick up the same amount of information to understand the same amount of context. And it was just confusing to me because for me, I felt I would be very stressed out and have tons of anxiety if I feel like I'm missing lots of information, lots of context. And my team is just telling me, no, 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 no. We gave you everything. You should just understand it. I don't think we really need a meeting because I, I sent you everything. And me feeling like I still have questions. And there is either this resistance to making time to talk to me about it or this sense of I should already know this, right? Which I think some of us have all experienced that at some point in our career. Like, oh my God, I'm scared people are going to think I already know this, but when you're in that also power dynamic, right. And you're on the side of less power. I know I would feel hyper anxious about the perception is that like, I'm not doing a good job when I'm really trying my best. And so those are things that also really bother me when it comes to when people decide we're going to have a team that's going to be based in this different time zone, or this is going to be the only team that's not based in the U S 
and there's not thoughtfulness from leadership and like how do we create a culture that everybody feels included and everybody is set up for success ultimately because people really liked the idea of remote work when it was like oh i can move to ohio right and get a really nice house and you know have a place in the suburbs but then there is this all the stuff where people like that idea but before it's like if you have someone who's based somewhere else there's a lot of stuff where people are like I don't think we need to really do anything extra for them. They got it. And then people are now experiencing remote work for the first time. And they're like, wait, there are actually certain things that are like pretty hard, especially if certain people are centralized around certain time zones or certain locations that is just not something that is, I think, well thought out. And especially when we start talking about contractors, even if a company decides like these are going to be full-time employees in other countries, depending on how long a company has existed in a centralized location, there's sometimes resentment and fear that, oh, they're just going to hire all these cheap people from this country. And some of that seeps through in how people choose to communicate with those people. And I know I'm saying a lot, but I'm also like super, I've been technically working with remote teams since I was in college. And like the first full-time job I ever had, like my team was based in Belarus. And I've worked with so many remote teams over the years and I have so many opinions about it. And I just see like again and again and again that all it really takes is like, okay, if I would say something like this to someone at the coffee cooler, like about, oh, this project's happening, da, 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 da. And that little extra context, which sometimes seems insignificant, I need to make sure that there is some sort of Slack message, email, how, how do they work best, like some sort of thing so that they are getting an equivalent experience in a remote world. Wow. One, one of the things I'm thinking about now is, is just how much very few words, very few communications that we might have with someone has in terms of impact and shaping that relationship and impact and shaping all communication that cascades from that relationship. Like you were talking about this example where you had one experience with a team and then there's another relationship that takes place and the, the view, the perception of you know, how they see the, you know, these, these other people on this other team out there versus your experience, you know, just the variance in the relationship and how it evolved, the perception of the team and their capabilities and everything else can just snowball from there, from like the seed of like a few conversations and, and the importance and the responsibility of leadership to frame that relationship, to frame it in a way that is supportive and seeing of the humans and, and the challenges and the power of going, you know what, we're all on the same team. I'm thinking back to the small bubble thing we touched on before. It sounds like if you were on a small bubble team with these remote people, you could fill them in. You're on it. You got this. But then if they're on another team, a small bubble that's not as remote aware and thoughtful, then they're not going to do as well. I'm always thinking about this. I am so confident I can get any small team to be a happy bubble if I'm in there long enough and I put my mind to it, but then the level up, it's not necessarily within my power as a PM to make a change above my level. What experience have you had around trying to do that, whether it went well or it didn't go well, or you made some amount of progress toward changing the company culture? I want to hear that. Yeah. So one of the companies I was at, they opened up a new office that was many time zones away from the like centralized time zone. And this was a thing where the centralized office, you know, was in person and they created another in-person office in this other, other time zone, full-time employees. 
And there were just things that people would say that were so small, but it was driving me absolutely nuts. Cause I was like, I know you guys wouldn't say that in front of the people from that other office. And it would be things like, we don't know what hours they work. And this was after a whole quarter. I think that these, that, that office had been, I think, open for at least a year. And the people who were saying this, we don't know what hours they work, had been in a meeting actually that I set up that was like once a week with those specific developers. And I talked to my boss about this because I said like, okay, so usually if I have a question about, hey, what hours are you working? Whether it's like you're in my same time zone and you drop your daughter off every day at three or whether you're in some very remote time zone from where I am, right? I'm like, just ask them. I'm like, they're right there. Like, how is there confusion? Why is it that you can talk to the people that you know in the US, but you can't talk to the people that are outside the US that also happen to be brown people? And there are other little, and that's why I sound like really small, but I was thinking, I was like, but literally we've been working with them, <laughs> like directly with this specific team for like now three whole months. How are we not saying like, I spent three whole months in meetings with them and I never asked them this question. Google Calendar also has working hours, which our company utilizes. So I was like, if you have a question about, are there Google Calendar working hours up to date? That's a very simple question. The fact that it was like, these were questions that were being asked to a broader group where people from this other office were not included. And they were like, I think we need to better understand ways of working, which I agree, you know, you want to understand what helps people work their best. But these were like things where it was just like, this is kind of hard working with them. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, this whole quarter, this team has actually been ahead of schedule. And you've been in meetings where if you had questions, you could ask them directly. So why is this an organizational concern now? Right. And it was something where I don't think anybody intentionally meant harm. But I thought to myself, I was like, I would be mortified if any of this got back to anyone in that office. Number one. Number two, I was like, this doesn't have a place in our company, but I am not at a level where from a political standpoint, I can confront some of the people who said those things. So it's something I had to go through my boss and say, like, here are my concerns. I don't think this was intentional, but the fact that these concerns only popped up with these specific people in the specific office that also happened to be like in a country where realistically, like they're getting paid less than us. It's an office where there's only going to be brown people in there. Um, and I don't say black and brown because it's a place where it's like, there's definitely only brown people in that office, but I had to address it with my boss and my boss had a conversation and some of that stuff reduced, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, running into those things and running into people where it's, I'll say a lot of times it's not even direct, but it's things where I'm like, they know what those things mean when they hear them. And I know what those things mean when I hear them. And I just think people don't consider how does me think even once the thought even gets in your head, you have to stop and think like, is this thought even make sense? Why should I be concerned about this? Maybe I should stop myself and be like, what can I do to like, make sure that my questions don't make people feel excluded in this environment, especially because they work here, contractor or full time, these are all full time people. But even if they're contractors, they work here, we share the same goals. We are on the same team. We are part of the same culture. We don't, I don't believe in having second class citizen people in a company. I don't believe in second class employees. So I'm like, either we 
the way we ask questions about anything about them or the way we think about them is not going to be different than how we're going to think about everybody else who's US based and also in a primarily, you know, white environment. And I'll say it did get be- it did get better after that dressing with my boss, but it is something where it's a lot easier to handle when it's like on your team and with people you have a lot more influence over and it gets a little harder when there are sometimes people above you or, or in other circles where you're kind of like those people were did come to my meetings, but they were technically out of my bubble in a way. And it was, mm-hmm. I had to kind of go a level above me and kind of voice my concerns because if I don't voice those concerns, no one else is going to voice those concerns. And also, I don't know if those people are necessarily empowered. If they had overheard those things, are they going to feel empowered enough to say the truth? Are they going to be afraid for their jobs if they speak the truth about how that type of thing makes them feel. And so oftentimes there's this thing that happens at companies where people feel, oh, well, no one said anything, so it must not be a problem. Yeah, that silence. The silence is a response. It's a it's a thing that we feel and experience too. You know, when we say something and the response is silence. When something happens and the response is silence, it's a response. It's not an absence of a response. That is a response. Yeah. This sounds like a stark example of a power dynamic. So it's the main office, remote office. It's the culture and ethnicity, both. And I'm, I'm wondering if the people on the more powerful side of the group, the main office, are they aware of this dynamic? If they're aware, are they interested in doing anything about it? And if they're interested, are they like committed to doing things? I can tell, and you are committed to doing things. But like of your peers, I wonder where they are in like the spectrum of being aware if they're not aware, it's hard to blame them if they're completely unaware and no one's offered the ability to become aware, like DEI workshops, I don't know. Then nothing nothing is a silver bullet. But there's like yeah. a whole path that people I go on to become such strong allies like you are. I think it can be hard though, because in several companies I've had trainings about unconscious bias, um, harassment, things you don't say about team members, things you don't do to exclude team members, like how to create an inclusive environment. But then once you get into reality, things that people start thinking, right, for them maybe are in a gray area or maybe a specific thing that wasn't covered by that training. There's a lot in which people are like, I could never harm someone in that way because I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not homophobic. I'm not ableist. And I think that's one of the problems we have, I think as a society, even bigger outside of the workplace, is this perception that like I, who took the the DEI training or I took the whatever training, cannot be racist. I'm married to somebody who is of this background. I have a friend that is this, you know, I have friends who are gay, you know, I can't be this. And there's this whole thing where I think that's one of the hardest things to learn that even someone like me, where I'm like, yes, I'm committed to changing this and da, 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 da. I can still harm people. I can still mess up and hurt people. And I don't get to just say, I had good intentions, so you should just be grateful for that. Or I had good intentions, therefore it doesn't count as this. And that's something that I think we need to learn more that even if you have the best intentions, you can still hurt someone and it still counts as hurting someone. 
doesn't mean it doesn't count because you had good intentions. And sometimes you just have to say, oh my gosh, I did say that. That was this. I need to work on this area. I'm sorry. And I think our reaction to society is like, we meet the reality of ourselves in ways and times that we don't expect. And it can be a shock and out of fear of like, oh my God, if people think I'm racist, am I going to lose my job or da, 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 da. And like, I'll say, if you're very racist, I do have opinions on that. But if it's like, you made one comment where, you know, I'm like, apologize, right? Realize you're like, yeah, me being concerned about how these people work maybe didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, like my best friend is this or yeah, this. But like for some reason, I still thought that thought. And that's something where it's like we don't really teach people like how to confront that or that it's okay to be like, well, crap, I messed up here. Let me apologize instead of putting out five non-apologies before I put out like an apology later where like nobody really believes in it's not sincere. Like how can we have an environment where that sort of feedback loop related to like microaggressions is just normal and low friction. Yeah. And then like certainly like people will, you know, should obviously like make amends for it, but like it doesn't have to have more drama than, than necessary. I think those kind of conversations are always uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean we can't have uncomfortable conversations and learn how to be resilient working through challenging conversations. Like, I I don't think, I mean, like, it's not that it doesn't get easier with practice and things. For uh, my work with my consulting group, I like to focus on people who are interested in learning and then how they just need practice. They need to know the tools and techniques and they can practice it. I'm personally not interested in people who are totally unaware and disinterested. That is a harder battle. And I want to get better at this middle step first before I would focus upstream, up the funnel. But there are a lot of people who are just oblivious and they would love to learn and have space to practice this. And that that's its own problem. That's its own difficult challenge. Yeah, I, I agree in terms of giving people a place like who actually want to learn. And also, I would say also are doing the work to learn because... Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying, okay, if somebody is on the receiving end that they should be that person to have to put up with this. But for, it sounds like you have a consultancy where you're able to work with those people, right? People can pay money. So obviously somebody is interested in being there to actually have that space and learn because some people, they would otherwise learn more, but there's certain things where it's like nuance. And also I think there's a, so, like a piece about in practice Because there's one thing where you can read something like White Fragility, you can read all the books you want, you can find that article on the web, and still kind of have things that come out of your mouth where you're like, no, don't say that, don't do that. Or or in this situation, just your specific action, like even if it's not words, was not great. And teaching people the tools of recognizing for themselves because it's also like reading self-help books, but then thinking because you read the self-help books that all your interactions in real life are perfect and fine. And that's why we also have therapists, right? Because therapists kind of tell you you're talking about your day and they can kind of help you unpack. Well, why, why did you think that? Why did you, why, why was that your reaction? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Because you can read all the self-help books and think you're doing these things 
And there could actually be all these layers under it that you're realizing, oh, in practice, I think I'm doing this, but here are the actual outcomes of what I thought I was achieving. Because there's like a feedback loop where you you get to, for lack of a better word, like experiment with what you learned and find out if you understand it correctly. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't really like that word, like experiment. I mean, I can't think of a better way to put it, but like, yeah, it's like, I can learn a foreign language all I want by studying in a book, but like it really cements when I go and have a conversation with a person that speaks that language. I like the parallel to therapy. You just inspired a new idea I never had before. What if there were some people who would coach others one-on-one, like therapist, like a session? I do more uh, workshops where I end up having people in breakout groups and they talk to one or two other coworkers about things. And it's hard to make a the safe space where they're comfortable and they'll make progress. But I'm pretty proud of that I can do that in a lot of the time. But then there's no expert involved. There's nobody who really knows. It's just peer feedback. So what if there was a coach for like one-on-one training on how to be a better ally? I think that would be really powerful. And my question is how do we get companies to pay for it for their employees? That's its own problem because workshops scale better. Yeah. And honestly, I really feel like mm-hmm. they should just have that type of person on retainer for especially their leadership, right? And not saying, you know, individuals on teams don't need it, because I think that's a, another thing where it's like, I'm not saying, oh, reserve some of the most expensive resources for leadership and lock it away. But also, if we're talking about how do we teach people to recognize what they're doing, and also how that impacts the teams that they are responsible for managing, and how that impacts the company culture. Because that, I think that's how we end up seeing a lot of these things keep repeating themselves in company culture again and again and again and again. Even the things that are perfectly legal, but are actually still harmful in some way, shape, or form to different underestimated um, and underrepresented groups. You know, And I think that would have a massive impact. This is a great idea because I feel like I've wanted to like work out questions I've had about work with my therapist and there's like so much I have to I would have to like bring her up to speed on just in terms of like she doesn't work in tech she's a therapist (laughs) like um and doesn't have like understand the company at all because again she doesn't work there and I feel like that would be so helpful to like someone who like understands generally like what this company is working on and like what my job is but doesn't have like an active day-to-day involvement in what I do and can give sort of a hopefully a less biased perspective. I love it. I hear that from a lot of people. People want a work therapist. Yeah. Or what whatever you'd call it. Yeah. I think they exist a bit. I don't know specifically how you find them. But I will say so this is not not a therapist. So and there's different types of career coaches, but I have a career coach that I've been working with since I think 2015. And she's not a therapist, first and foremost. And also she is not this type of role that is helping me be less any of the things that potentially anyone could do to harm another group, right? She's not there to be like, I heard you mention this, that sounds ableist. She's not doing that. But one thing that has really helped me in my career is having somebody who actually kind of knows what I do. She is not someone who is in tech. She is a third party person and she actually kind of knows the different problems I've had in different companies, where the themes are, what has been unique to different companies, and also asking questions to unpack things to help me also understand 
was I the asshole in this situation? Or was this like, was like something else going on that was like completely out of my control? And that has given me really good perspective in my career in, okay, where, where am I owning something that's happened versus this is out of your control. Maybe there's something you could have done better, but also don't beat yourself up over this thing when this was like your leadership team should have been doing this. And she also knows my habits. So she also knows that, Hey, it kind of feels like you're slipping back into this habit at work. And there's different types of, you know, career coaches, right? There are different ones where they're like, I am focused on product management thing, X, Y, Z. And this is what's going to get you specifically this promotion because I'm going to have you work on this specific product skill. This one is, she's more of a a generalist. And I actually started seeing her um, more for like career influence product coaching, where it was really, I was much more junior at the time and really struggling to understand where the disconnect was in my career, where my actual project teams were saying things like, wow, Anne, you do such a great job. You're amazing. Da, 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 da. I'd have very senior people I worked with that would say, when are they going to promote you? And then when I would speak to my manager and my manager's manager, it felt like I was treated very junior. I didn't really know how to talk to them. So the things that I was updating them on, I thought were very important, which then I then learned, oh, it really just made me sound like I don't know how to focus. I just thought, you know, and I was just pouring information at them and they were like, oh, she doesn't know what to focus on or she doesn't know this. And I thought I was impressing them, (laughs) you know, and it's one of those things where having somebody with that third party respect um, perspective and also someone where they can kind of help you work on specific things that are, I think, like more, more general also is very helpful. And she's not a work therapist. She's not you know, helping me unpack how my childhood experiences impacted how I reacted in the work situation. But she is someone who knows a lot of my work history because we've been working together for so long. And I'm able to talk to her about when things are going really, really well. And she's, she's talked to me when I'm like, I started looking for a new job because I can't take it here anymore. And so that's been something I really value. That's so cool. I love hearing it. You have support. Your support doesn't have to exclusively come from your manager and your current job. You hear that, everyone listening? You can have other support. It could be friends too. Highly recommend having support outside of your manager and your current job. Not easy in a remote workplace. Or maybe it is, I don't know. But I would think it would be harder. Networking is really big. And I know people always are like, networking. But to be specific about networking, because there's different types of networking. Networking in a way where you are finding the online communities of people who value the same things as you and possibly even going through similar things, but not resorting to toxic ways of dealing with those things has been one of the biggest career hacks in terms of finding people that also understand outside of my career coach. So sometimes I can even ask them like very specific questions to being in tech or very specific questions to being a PM or being a PM as a black woman in tech. And those type of things have made a big difference for me because there's a lot of things where you start seeing patterns and, Oh, other people are experiencing this. This is how other people are dealing with it and ways it didn't work out and the ways it did work out. And that's something where, you know, just sending LinkedIn messages off to people who just seem like very successful, you know, while I know that is a thing, I've really found the things that have made the biggest difference for me is finding these groups, whether they're private Facebook groups or they're, 
LinkedIn groups or their you know private Slack groups for women in tech. Really, that is where I've been able to find additional support. And also there's people where, you know, even they're my peers and I'm like, whoa, like we're now collaborators on something that this, you know, we both really value a lot that, you know, my day job would never give me a project like this. And now I'm getting to collaborate with somebody outside of my day job to work on this thing because I met somebody who else who is like fits in terms of values, what they're interested in. And I think that's one of the biggest things of, of networking is finding finding the communities first before you find the individuals. Because in those communities, you're going to start noticing who are the individuals I see, tend to align with. And maybe I shoot them a message or maybe like they need help with interviews and I can do a mock interview. And that starts, you know, we reach out to help each other, that sort of thing. Those are all things where I highly recommend and I think are much more effective than just being like, that person looks like they probably make a lot of money at that company. That has always been the most helpful for me. I'm wondering, how do you find these communities? One trick I love is to tell people you're looking for those communities. They might know. I don't know why this is like so far into a lot of people. You should tell people your goals publicly. Did you do any of that? How did you find yours? Absolutely. Some of it is telling people I'm looking for these communities. And some of it is people I've worked with in the past who have been part of my bubble. Understanding those are the communities I would want to be in and saying like, hey, are you in this Facebook group? And me being like, no, I've never heard of it. And then they just add me. And one of them has been like the most, there's one that is for like black women in tech. And it has been one of the most valuable online communities I've been in that I've been in long before the pandemic, but somebody just added me because they know my values align and also being a black woman in tech and having experienced certain things. In addition to everything else I do, I also run um, like a small group coaching program called the Tractor Dream Job, where basically I teach people how to get companies to come to them. Or if you do apply, making it so that you have a better likelihood of them actually responding to you instead of applying to a hundred companies, just, you know, what I call, um, spray and pray. So how do you avoid that? And one of the things I always tell people is actually the thing you just said. First step is number one, tell people that you're, if you're looking for a job, don't blast it out on LinkedIn. If you have a current job, you don't want to get fired, but like tell your, your inner network, like get their email, send them a DM on LinkedIn, something. And if you're also looking for those groups, right? Because we actually have an assignment that is you actually need to find like three groups like this for your job search and telling them like, okay, reach out to people saying, do you know a group for people who are really into art and backend development? You know, that's, I've made that up, right? But like those things where it's not just like, here's just a generalist tech group, tell them what you're looking for. And then the other piece I always tell them is go to LinkedIn, go to Facebook, go to even just Twitter. Well, you could start with really like LinkedIn and Facebook, you actually can search for such and such group in and then whatever your industry is, right? And that's one way it's actually very easy to find people to connect with or like those communities. And then also on Twitter, kind of starting to browse around, looking at hashtags. Um, there's Black Tech Twitter, which is like, I really love that. And there's a lot. Actually, we did a whole barbecue here in New York in 2019 because of Black Tech Twitter, because I was like, I have this idea that we're going to have like a black tech New York cookout because I was like, you know, I never see other black people in tech unless it's, this is a hiring event by this company. 
for our DNI DEI stuff. And I was like, I never see an event that's like, you just get to hang out and talk. And you know, while we might talk tech, this is really just an opportunity to meet other people in the industry who are like you. And that really was all organized off of a thread on Twitter. So there's lots of places you should go, but you should always let people know what you're looking for, what type of community you're looking for, because people don't know. They don't know. And the other thing I always tell people, a lot, you'd be surprised how many people who have, have no idea what industry you're in or what you do. Um, you think your friends know, you might even think people you used to work with know. But one example I give a lot is one of the jobs I used to work at, I had a coworker who got peer feedback. He was a product manager. He got peer feedback from someone else that his wireframes were terrible. And my coworker doesn't make wireframes. <laughs> we have like a whole UX designer. Uh, it was a UX designer on that team that was responsible for wireframes. But the peer feedback was like, this person's wireframes aren't very good. This person's very nice, but the wireframes are bad. And you realize like, while this is not necessarily the most common thing, if somebody on your team that worked with you for a whole project can misunderstand what your role was in the project and what you actually produced. People who haven't talked to you in a year or two can easily misunderstand what you are doing or if you changed industries. There are a lot of things that people can get confused about. They saw you post something on your Instagram once and now they think that you work there. So there's just a lot of ways in which people actually have no idea how they would even start to help you if you don't tell them. Yeah, people don't know. I got um, an award for the last company I worked at a year after, and I was kind of hesitant to post it because I'm like, I don't work there. I've been gone a long time. I don't want to confuse everyone. I did anyway, but I don't work there. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, people don't know unless you tell them, unless you talk to them about it. And even then, they might not remember, and that's normal human behavior too, especially in tech. What's a product manager anyway? You know, <laughs> that's the question. I know. That is the question. The reality is, is that, well, product management as a discipline has been around for a while. There are a lot of companies who did not have product managers really, or a product manager discipline until the last five years. That's just the reality. We like to think, oh man, this has been around for a really long time. It has. But there are a lot of companies where they were like, we have a project manager and we have a BA and there's no one who's a product manager. And while some of those skills overlap, a product manager has also a lot more of this undercovering the why piece that technically isn't a solid responsibility of a project manager and a BA, right? Those people can do that type of thing, but they're technically not accountable in their career for those things. So if you want to make sure you hire someone who is going to be accountable for that and has a track record and is much more focused on moving metrics than just, hey, the project is done, you would want that separate discipline. But you have actually certain developers where, oh, this discipline is really recent at this company and that developer has been there 10 years and they're like, I only know the product managers I work with and half of them were basically just project managers where the title changed. And, and oh, I hate that. Yeah. Which, you know, some of those companies do stuff to upskill those people, but there's a lot of people out there who've never worked with a, a product manager and don't really understand, well, what is the difference between that and a prod? I actually had someone at my current job who actually is like my best work friend who didn't understand like, the difference between a project manager and a product manager, she thought it was a matter of semantics. And she's not someone that I necessarily get to work with frequently. So it's not like she's viewing my work and she's like, it's the same. But it's something where people even you work with, it's not even guaranteed that they understand what you're supposed to be doing. And after you stop working with them, they 
probably have no idea what you were supposed to be doing. They forgot. They were like, yeah, they did good things. And they, you know, might write like that person was a good project manager. And you're like, no, you know, but it's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you have no idea what people's perception of what you were supposed to be doing at your, your job, where you could be a front end developer and somebody's saying like, that person was not very good at updating things for the database. And you're like, yeah, because they're a front end developer. You know, like there's a lot of stuff where people don't necessarily know or understand based on the industry and company they're coming from. Where do you think those misperceptions come from? You, you touched on it a little bit, but why? Like, is it just that like we're, our brains are so full that like we get one, we see one tweet from somebody and we just attach that to that person because we don't have enough energy to learn more or I think there's some of that. I think there's also some of it is how the human brain works and it tries to oversimplify things. And I also think it also comes from there is often a fear of asking too many questions, um, especially if you're not in an environment that fosters an, a culture of trust and safety. And there can be a fear of asking, you know, I forgot, can you please just explain to me like, what it is your responsibilities are and like what it is you do. And it also gets really tricky when, cause every organization does this to at least a few people, somebody starts filling gaps for things that they see missing in the organization, right? That's not their job, but they start doing it. And then that person becomes auto enrolled in being the person responsible for that thing. They might be, Oh, that person's a front end. Their, their title might be front end developer or front end engineer. But let's say that person started doing wireframes because they couldn't get enough of a UX designer's time. So they started doing that and they started getting really good at it. The company started saying like, okay, well, that person's on the project so they can handle wireframes. And then it becomes a thing where that person does talk about UX things. But the perception is that person's not a developer. That person's a UX person. And people not actually asking questions. Sometimes organizations not doing the right thing. I mean, sometimes it's because, you know, organizations can't afford to hire somebody, especially when you're talking about startups, but especially once you get into bigger organizations, sometimes they choose not to hire somebody else. Somebody starts trying to fill the gaps because they're the kind of person where they cannot stand to see, okay, so we're just going to sit here and be blocked or be yelled at or something because nobody wanted to even just do a simple mock-up in PowerPoint, right? Like those are things where, organizations also allowing for ill-defined roles and letting people be a catch-all, right? Also creates that problem where people perceive you as one thing. And in reality, well, technically this is your role. And now people are saying, well, that person's not a developer. When I worked with them, they were doing wireframes. And it really kind of a little bit organizational problem. Also, you know, how our brains work and also just kind of the nature of, people actually trying to be proactive and that sort of thing. And people also, we said that lack of safety to, for people to just clarify what it is people do, especially if you're working with a lot of different teams with your organizations constantly, you might be dealing with a lot of people where you're like, I know this person's on that team and that they're responsible for getting this for me, but I actually have no idea what the context of their role is outside of my relationship with them. Sometimes I end up making a spreadsheet where I put in all the responsibilities in rows and we see which ones are filled or not and who's doing all of the stuff in the middle. That's the best visualization I've seen is like a spreadsheet for it. 
I wish there were more or easier ways that more people could do that because it's really powerful. Once you see it, it's glaringly obvious it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think one of the dangers, though, is people assuming, oh, well, because we're just adding copy to this design, that doesn't count as design work. Or we're assuming the PM or the front end person can handle that design work. But when we look at, oh, if this person's over allocated, are they really going to do the best job to make sure that, yes, this this is the right place for the copy. This is how it works. Because even if we're talking like, oh, we just need to add one line of copy. Okay, cognitively, what does that do to the customer? Is somebody looking at the page holistically and thinking about it? And if you have somebody else, even if it's a small ask, who has a bajillion other things on their plate covering it, we can say, yeah, this is under this person. But I think also like leadership needs to think about, okay, how have we resourced that person? Is that person really going to even be able to do that small task that we perceive as we don't need like to fill in that design part of the sheet, right? Because it's something so small. But I think that also comes from people not understanding the full value that some of these roles really provide outside of they produce the deliverable. There's a lot of stuff where I'm like, you really need somebody's time for them to even consult on your team. And not even like bringing an outside consultant, just somebody who maybe isn't allocated to your team to even just come in and consult and be like, yeah, that's great. Or wow, you added that line. Your page was already nuts. The cognitive load on that person is going to be this. They're not going to read any of this. And you're going to have a bunch of customers calling you complaining. And when you have somebody who basically has to do like a drive by, yes or no, that looks okay. You're not going to get the same result. On the other end of that, um, I'm an engineer. I'm a backend engineer, and I think in a lot of places, I don't think in my company, but I think in a lot of companies, there's been an overcompensation of saying like we have to really protect engineers' time, we have to really protect their like their focus. We shouldn't have any too many meetings, and I I've never liked that. Like the typical engineer that like they get a ticket and like, there's something that's not completely clear about what they're supposed to do. And they just like throw it back to the PM immediately. And I, I've just, that, that sort of culture has always just drove me nuts where it's like, sure. Maybe like we traditionally think of like the PM's job to like sort of maybe convene people, perform glue work. Like if it's just like this smaller medium question, why don't I do that? Like, why don't I open a conversation and include my PM, but also talk to the other people that, we need to get a question answered from. So then I can unblock myself. I think there there are some roles that have to be necessarily have to sort of like protect, like this is what I do. I think there's other roles that are like too protective of what, of like, I only do this and could maybe stand to go outside their boundaries a little bit. I agree <laughs> so much. And I am very much a supporter of, Everybody owns the product. Yes, you have a product manager. Do they have certain expectations with their role about how they manage that ownership? Yes. Does that mean that your developers are just there to do a bunch of tickets and like never provide product type of feedback? No. And I really think you get better results, better products when everybody is able to have ownership over it. And I think it sometimes gets into this like Steve Jobs syndrome where you're like, I am the genius of the team. I was hired to be the Steve Jobs of the team. And I just tell everybody what to do. And oftentimes that results in a lot of crap. You know, it also creates a lot of inefficiencies. The PM becomes the bottleneck, other things. And if you're really empowering your team and you're saying like, 
I led like a testing and experimentation team for over a year. And every Friday we would go through the data. My team would go through the data of all the experiments together because I'm like, what is the point of them doing all this work to code up this experiment? And then they never, they just find out, did it win or it lose? They don't actually learn anything about like, what about the customer's behavior changed? Why do we think it changed? What problems do we think were in this? Would we iterate on this? And it really helped them not only have more ownership over the work that they did, it helped them be able to kind of say, actually, I have this idea to iterate on this. I am not the person that wants to do everyone's job. I cannot come up with all the ideas in the universe. And people will come up with things where I'm like, wow, I really didn't think about we could iterate it on this way because of this information. And I really think that's also a big responsibility of like PMs and other collaborative roles is to empower people to actually also have product ownership. And I think there were days where it's like the developer just does work and that's it. And, you know, don't ask questions you don't understand like what's going on. But one of the jobs I joined years and years ago, I was a relationship that was between the development team and the design team was incredibly toxic, which actually coincidentally enough was also a thing where it was like a team based in New York with a team that was based outside the U S and they would basically do a bunch of designs and send over like a big Adobe file. I think an email with no layers or anything in it to this development team and say, cool, let us know if you have questions. And the development team would work on it and then say, hey, we finished building it. And then design would say, holy crap, this is terrible. Like, what is this? And when I first joined, I was like, why? They really don't get along, first and foremost. And number two, why are these things happening? And I started talking to the different members of each team to understand what's going on here. And a lot of it was there was literally no process for collaboration. It was no one talked to the developers during the requirements gathering or during the design phase. So designers would just design whatever without anybody there to give feedback to like, if you do this, it's actually going to make us have to do this call and it's going to add this many seconds onto the page. and You're probably going to have a lot of people leave. You know, there was none of that kind of feedback loop. The assumption was whatever we design can be done. And the developers had feedback where they said, we have tried to ask questions in the past upfront when we, somebody finally hands this off. And oftentimes it feels like people are speeding through trying to answer the questions that people don't understand the question or don't think it's not obvious what this is. And they'll ask questions and they're like, we sometimes get answers back that don't make sense to us. And when we try to ask more clarifying questions, there's annoyance, dismissal. And so they basically said, it is actually faster for us to just not ask any questions, build what we think needs to be built, and then just get all the feedback at the end than it is to try to ask questions throughout. And this is the fascinating thing about this organization. And it wasn't the developers and it wasn't the designers, but it was like leadership was deathly scared of agile for some reason. And I suggested maybe we should use some agile methodologies. And I got a massive amount of pushback that said, we don't do agile here. And I was like, okay. And I instead decided to make some suggestions. And I was like, would people be okay if maybe three times a week, 
we just have like a 15 minute meeting where we talk about what's going on and design and development and anybody else who needs to be involved can just join for 15 minutes. And people said, well, yeah, that, that sounds like it's okay. No problem. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was like, and maybe we could like plan out the work that we intend to do in like two week increments. And we could have a meeting towards the beginning of that two week thing where we plan out together what's going to happen. Right. And people were like, that sounds good. I like that. That sounds nice. And I was like, you know, as needed at the end of these two week things, we could talk about what went well, what didn't go well. And people said, yeah, that sounds, that sounds fine. Cool. We'll do that. And the first time I implemented this on a project at that company, the designer at the end came to me and said, this is the first time I've been able to use anything we built in my portfolio because what actually got built was actually what the designers intended. And the thing is, is that there were things that the client said, I want to change this in design. And then the developers were like, actually, here's a problem and we could do this, but this is what's going to happen. And the designer was like, my special animation is not going to work. That was the whole point. Like, why can't we do this? It should be super simple. And they were like, but you have to use this weird special technology for the specific type of animation you wanted to do. But having that conversation in the moment, and also I think they also need a facilitator that maybe understood tech a little bit more than that specific design team. There's some design teams that are much more tech savvy. Help them understand you can have something that looks like animation that doesn't use any special technologies other than what we would use for a standard website here. And that you're not going to have to worry about knowledge transfer if somebody leaves. You're not going to have to worry about like, does anybody else other than this one developer know how any of this works? And also it's going to be really easy to update every time there's a content change, which we know happens for this, this client pretty much like every three to four months. And that was something where it was kind of like the designer was like, I'm sad that some of the like beautiful sparkles and things around the soap and stuff aren't going to be as flowing as I had anticipated but she was a lot happier than, you know, had the development team just decided, well, we can't do that. So now it's a static image. We basically implemented something where it ended up being this carousel. And we we're just like, just give us these images so that when they go through the carousel, it looks like this animation is happening. Like pretty much like, you know, when you used to, like you could draw things in like a flip book and make it look like something's moving. Basically the website version of that, which is much easier to maintain, much easier to update the content. And it was just really fascinating because there was such this animosity and almost like mm -hmm. hate between the design and the development teams. But it was also like your bridges of communication are completely broken and like nobody wants to change. And one team is like, it's all this team's fault. And the other team is like, it's all this other team's fault. But also from a company level, they also didn't previously, didn't actually have someone in that role to help facilitate either. And they were also deathly scared of trying a different process. They were scared of agile when in reality, they actually had no problem with agile. I think they just were scared that, I don't know, it was going to change their whole company process. And I was like, just because somebody uses it on one bubble, isn't going to bring the whole company down. And in fact, it like worked out really well. I love this story. Yeah, small steps forward. You can make this incremental change to your team you're on. Anyone can do this on any level, you just might have to disguise it and do it very small, one step at a time. Sneaky agile, secret agile. Yeah, secret agile. 
gonna brand it. I guess I can't brand it because Agile is already trademarked. <laughs> It'll be like a like a off brand, like Secret Agile. Um, early in my career as a front end developer, I suggested we could do a, a design this way in one day, or this way that you want in one month. And after I talked to everyone involved, they agreed two developers times four weeks times forty hours was worth it for this. I absolutely don't think it was. I think the designer didn't have 30 minutes to talk to us. That's a different different cause here. Uh, that happens too. 30 minutes of a designer's time could have saved. Imagine the amount of money that was. Oof. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what we were saying where it's like allowing everyone to have product ownership. And if you're kind of gatekeeping like, oh, we, we can't afford to have 30 minutes of that person's time or we don't want, we don't want the developer thinking about those things. It actually takes longer and actually results in less good product. Yeah, I visualize turbulence. Like if there's stuff going smoothly, it's just going. Otherwise, it's looping around and bubbling and uh, all that wasted energy. I'm not a manager, but I've always felt like it would be better to, like you said, empower people to sort of do what they need to get to get things done, um, even if uh, they don't do so in the most efficient way, because then they at least know that they're empowered to do it people are going to like sort of figure out and iterate on those sort of like fluid ways of navigating the organization to get what they need. And you have to experiment to do that. Yeah. I think that's really a part of a culture of learning, right? People say they want a culture of learning. They're like, Oh, here's a stipend. Go take this class. But if you don't get a chance to learn it in your organization and try to practice it, it's all theoretical. You know, and not saying theory isn't good, but it's it's the difference between, I don't know. I'll just say like, I, I studied engineering in college. It's the difference between like when you're studying engineering versus like when you actually get out into the real world and work in a, a real environment, right? It's very different. You learn things, but there's things you have to adjust based on what is reality. Things, everything in theory tends to work, but that's in theory. Um, once you hit the real world, there are certain things where you have to adjust based on the situation and the context. Totally. It's like applied. It's like theoretical versus applied. And you need to apply it. Hands-on workshops. But even better than that, like in, on the team, having people on the team able to help support and coach each other. Yeah, I love that. I think that's something that doesn't happen enough is connecting people where it's like, you want so-and-so to get stronger at this and this other person's really good at that and that person needs to get better at this. Like, Those are things where that I don't think that happens enough. I actually had a thing at work today where somebody on our data team was like, I was told to learn more things about you know product management, you know, because they're like, that's where a lot of this, not that they're trying to become a product manager, but they're like, you know, it's going to help. They're like, it's supposed to help my career, you know, long-term to really be able to think about some of this data that I'm, you know, using, manipulating, I don't say manipulating, but, you know, like working with and, you know, like thinking about it in a product, I would say more so like customer way. I'll say more customer way because product can mean a lot of things. And my thing is I'm like, I'm a product manager. I've, I've taken data science classes, right? I know like just enough SQL to be, I want to say maybe dangerous, but like, whatever the level below dangerous is. And that's the thing is, but I'm like, there's things where I'm like, do I do those things day to day? Right? No, I don't. Like I look at some Google analytics reports. I look at Tableau. 
I look at a number, I use a number of things, but I'm like talking to someone who actually knows how this works and does the work in this organization is going to help. And we were like, yeah, so we should set up time to be like regularly exchange knowledge, like basically do a brain exchange so that like I can learn more about like this type of thing, you know, data and you can learn more about product and we both benefit. Maybe we need to change how we frame those conversations as to like what we're here to do when we have these interactions and relate. Cause a lot of the times when we're, things are framed in terms of, Oh, well, it's going to be a waste of their time. We don't want to, you know, infringe on their thoughts when they're supposed to be focused on these other things that framing that value proposition for everyone with respect to over the long term, we're here to learn together and learn from one another And even if during that time, what we get is a picture in our head of what this other person's context is like, such that over our careers down the road, we'll have a better picture of in our head of what these other people's contexts are like, that has like long term value that far exceeds the cost of 15 minutes. But if we don't frame things that way, and we frame it as this disruptive activity that is that only has this short term potential gain, kind of like we were talking about at the beginning of how we frame these relationships that we have, how we frame these conversations, those, those few minutes that are involved in that initial relationship setup, create this snowball of effects over the long term. And if we make an effort to think about how we want each of those relationships to go. If we think about what the value proposition is from a long-term perspective, and we make that the point, we're on the same team. I think that's the stuff that makes all the difference. I like this framing for you and the person you're talking to. Hopefully the framing is there on your team. Hopefully it's in the whole org. Hopefully all the leaders have it. But if the framing doesn't sound palatable on some level, I see that happen a lot. Like we know this is good long term. We know you and I, and even our team, maybe the bubble, and it breaks down somewhere. A lot of places, most places, I think. Yeah, I think it can break down for a number of reasons. One is again trust and safety. It's really interesting. I saw mm-hmm. someone on Twitter talking about this specifically for product managers, but obviously it can exist outside of that. Where they said, once people get to a certain level in their product management career, they notice that there's a lot less learning even product people do between each other in an organization and i think some of it is certain environments are hyper competitive and people don't want to seem like oh they don't know that or they didn't think of that and again i think some of it goes to this idea that and not saying everybody believes this but like the product manager is supposed to be this genius like steve jobs right and you're you're supposed to have all the knowledge and all the ideas and not everyone thinks that but i think some organizations made people feel like oh i'm i'm scared of you know, having that kind of exchange with somebody else in my discipline. And then I think some of it also can be companies where they stretch people really thin. They're like, I know this is good for my career. Um, I have my little bubble, but like I have no energy or interest in going outside my bubble for that kind of thing. And it's interesting because I think a lot of these things, I mean, some of it is individuals, but I also think a lot of these things are different causes from a culture standpoint that leadership could shift, you know, because at the end of the day, if you're exhausted, do you want to add one more meeting to your calendar? Do you want to do another thing when you, if you feel like you're already doing a lot right now and you're like, I know I should do this, but I'm tired. 
And also there's that, again, sometimes it's imposter syndrome or other things that make people feel like, in this company, I don't feel safe going to somebody else and being like, I don't actually know this thing. Can we talk more about it? Yeah. A lot of companies, there's no headroom. There's negative headroom. You're already over, overbooked in every way. Asking anything of that in that environment is a lot. Yeah. Oof, I love thinking on the organizational level. I'm glad you two don't mind going there. Jacob dropped off. It's really fun for me. I'm just looking at the time here. Uh, so with reflections, we usually go in a circle. It's usually the panelists first. And then we have the guest give your own reflections. It can be a thing that was interesting or memorable, something that will stick with you after the episode. So the thing that stands out for me, I think about where we started this conversation with superpowers and empathy and collaboration. And you're talking about growing up and being kind of an outsider where things were really challenging, but at the same time, you developed this ability to kind of understand what it was like to be on that other side of the wall such that now you're significantly more aware of what's going on in other people's heads and how they're perceiving these relationships that are going on. And it's like being able to have eyes of what it feels like to be on the other side of that wall. And we talked about contrast and these contrasting experiences from that to where in your home environment, you were loved and accepted as you are. And then in your journey and growth, you mentioned this desire for congruence to be able to be yourself in these different environments and why that was hard at the same time. Like as you were growing in that way, that congruence became like your self-actualization of being able to find this strength in yourself, this belief in trusting in your own voice so that you could stand up when someone needed to stand up so that you could go against the grain and be solid within yourself to be able to do things and step into these uncomfortable situations to create change, to create culture, to shape leadership, to shape these handfuls of super important critical conversations that frame the entire relationship moving forward from contrast to congruence and just seeing you blossom in that, seeing what you've been able to do, what you've been able to bring to the table as a human being, as part of the team is really amazing. Your journey of how you got there just says so much about who you are. And I hope listeners will be inspired of just really seeing how important it is to be able to trust yourself in those ways, to be able to find that strength and solidity within yourself so you can be someone that helps to contribute to moving things in a positive direction. That was beautiful. Uh, so my reflection is a little on the coaching and DEI side. I kind of said it earlier too. I was very excited about this idea. So I used to think DEI was not something I could help with because I'm a white man. What am I going to say to anything? But I do have the queer lens that gives me some kind of minority perspective that's really valuable. And white people, especially like conservative white men, are more likely to listen to me. It's my power. So I like to wield that and do 
things like uh, skills training workshops and coaching, including for diversity, equity, inclusion. But I never thought about specifically coaching people on DEI, like making that content. I don't know why, because I, I don't know all the formats for everything else that I do, but it was just like a light bulb went off in my head when you said it's kind of like therapy. It could be talking through problems. So I want to think about that more. Maybe we can talk another time about that. What would it look like? What would make it look successful? What would be helpful? Who could ever pay for it? Even like companies, I hope. How do we really help people change and grow the people who are motivated to? That's what I'll be thinking about after this episode. Yeah, I think that'd be wonderful. I think mine is more of a, like a final message, really. It's, it's a reflection, but it's more of, I think, a f- reflection and reflections of how I'm, I'm feeling than necessarily a specific topic. It is, it is related, but it's been a wild nearly two years in this pandemic. And I really think the future of where we need to go as a society, which also being in a tech-driven society, I think is very important for people in technology to consider is how do you bring what you love to the table? I'm not asking you to be exploited by your company, but I think, and sorry, this is going to be very hippie sounding, but if more of us showed up like with love in terms of how we build our products, right? Not just like, oh, I really love just building the product, but also like love for the people who you know, we're building it for and the people who will be impacted, but maybe we're not building it for um, showing up with love in terms of like how we're treating ourselves that day and how we can empower others to be the, their best selves in our bubble or, you know, when we have influence over it beyond our bubble and really reflecting how you can show up in some of these environments where you can show up with more love and create safe and trusting environments because I truly believe, you know, just because it's digital doesn't mean that what you put in it doesn't impact the outcome. If you put trash inside of a sausage, it's going to be trash in a sausage casing. If you put all your negative energy and disdain for what you're doing or your team, or you just are like, I don't care. You know, there's going to be things where obviously you're going to work jobs just for a paycheck, but figuring out which ways can you show up with love in that environment and whatever that means to you. And that's my final thought for the day. I love it. Thank you so much, Anne, for joining us here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and talk to you about these things. Um, it's just, it is, you said earlier in our conversation, it's great hearing these things from somebody else's mouth reflected back. And that's how I really feel about this, where I'm very passionate about these topics and being able to talk to other people and hear them value that as well means so much. Yeah, you're not alone. You're not crazy. You're not having ridiculous thoughts. You see some things very clearly and you can enunciate them, articulate them, share them. I'm so glad we got to do that together today. All of us. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for this. It is such a pleasure. Well, thank you, Anne. 